out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter Linda Smith, all the way from Baltimore, who I spoke to recently to find out more about the creative process and, um, yes, her life in music. So, um, And recently, she's also had a compilation that's just come out, a collection of her, her work, titled Till Another Time, 1988 to 1996. And um, she's got various other bits and pieces on Bandcamp and also on Spotify as well. So anyway, check it out. So this is the interview and after several minutes of casual chat, it's showbiz. That gets edited out. Uh, We got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Linda, tell us more. Tell us now. Well, um, I was born in 1955, so my, um, my reference is seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 1964 when they first came to this country. And, um, and uh, what was I at that age? Um, nine. Yes. And that, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> but I was not, I didn't really, wasn't really aware of pop music that much, the current pop music until I saw them. And then I had to hear everything that was on the AM radio at the time. And right. I had a little transistor and, you know, in those days, in this country anyway, the, um, the AM radio encompassed a lot of different artists and styles of music, much more so than now or even, say, in the past number of years since, since then. I mean, I think the 70s had, had still had some of that, yeah. but in, in the 60s, you had Motown, you had British rock, you had Frank Sinatra, you could Perry Como. I mean, you you had um, James Brown. You had all of these different styles of music, and um, and one was played right next to the other. They weren't divided up into stations or shows yes. or whatever. Oh, that's interesting. And did your and were your parents kind of of a musical or artistic kind of? Um, no, no, not really. Um, I, you know, I just became a, a victim of, of Beatlemania, I think, and <laughs> like many, many people did. <laughs> yes. And were, were you in Baltimore at this stage? Yes. So this is, this is the, the famous Baltimore. I kind of say famous because um, I know John Walters often talks about Baltimore and we became very obsessed with John Walters in the 70s and oh, really. interesting. So he, mm-hmm. <laughs> and obviously Randy Newman has that song called Baltimore, which we love as well. Uh-huh. So, um, yes. So as you as you were sort of going through the 60s, obviously you were almost at a perfect age, though probably a little bit too young to get into the complete kind of counterculture of the sort of 67. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, I I wasn't tuned into that at all. I mean, and um, but I was able to observe it as I was kind of growing up and still listening to the music yes and seeing how I mean the music changed quite a bit over time in that brief amount of time well absolutely because you and it was all very shiny and well it was quite radical Mm -hmm. because obviously you had Elvis and then Buddy Holly and Little Richard which was quite quite phenomenally kind of must have been a big shocker I know we have a short DJ in this country called John Peel although sadly he died oh yes he said Mm -hmm. you could never imagine what it was like to see 
you know, Elvis and then Little Richard and, and people like David Bowie and Lenny from Motorhead often talk about Little Richard as that kind of moment that you just saw. Uh -huh. and some, something triggered in that moment and, and had a huge influence in their lives. But then as the mm -hmm. 60s progressed, you had that kind of the move with the counterculture. And I suppose, you know, it went from you know, the drugs changed to, you know, more smoking and then LSD and then that psychedelic rock in quite a short period of time with Jimi Hendrix and then the Jefferson Airplane and, and you know, mm -hmm. 67 was the summer of love and then you had sort of, after that, things started getting a bit strange, coming up to sort of Woodstock and um, this is a very right. simplistic view of the 60s, isn't it? But then you, know, <laughs> you, you had that moment where you had, you know, in the 1970 where you just could imagine like it. When, mm -hmm. when a scene's been together for a bit of time, it often ends slightly badly and and with the 60s right. i mean it's a bit simplistic but you had the charles manson then you had Jimi hendrix janice joplin and jim morrison all dying it must have felt like wow you know that's that's quite well that's that chapter gone and you can all go yeah. you know, you're all you're 25 you're all past it you know forget it you know the new mm -hmm. kids are coming in and you need to go to sleep so how did you then so the early 70s must have been your kind of decade where where you were sort of leaving school or going to college or university. Right. Um, and actually, it was around early 70s, I kind of lost interest in rock and pop. And to me, I always kind of put this um, uh, segment. I segmented at that time because that was that was the year the Beatles broke up, 1970. Yes. Um, Diana Ross left the Supremes. There were a lot of things that happened. And um, the music itself was becoming um, different. It wasn't these short pop songs so, so much anymore um, with some of the groups, although um, but it wasn't until, say, you know, I was I started to listen to classical music more, more frequently than I did rock and pop music, and certainly the radio was not as interesting to me. Um, and and the bands in this country, particularly, it sort of gotten into that California soft rock stuff and the singer songwriters, and then later the disco came in and all that. And um, I wasn't as interested in that, but. I guess uh, about 1976, six years, I came across Patti Smith on uh, Saturday Night Live, and that 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 was that sort of reignited interest in yes. the whole music thing. And um, none of those people uh, really appeared on radio, but you you could access their music. You could go in a record store and buy it quite easily, and they were on people like Talking Heads, Steve-O, all those people were signed by major labels. It's hard to remember that now, but you might, you didn't really hear them on the top 40 radio. So mm. there kind of evolved this whole other scene. So, and, so obviously, so obviously doing that, kind of, this is quite simplified, isn't it? But, you know, we had that kind <laughs> of, that, that, so I suppose we had the glam period um, and then America, mm -hmm. As you said, you got into the sort of the West Coast scene of the Eagles, and then Fleetwood Mac appeared. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, I didn't listen to that so much. And what about people like Carol King and Joni Mitchell and Van Morrison? Because a lot of people really bought into that kind of vibe with Al Stewart thrown in as well. Did that any of that sort of? That didn't really stick with me. I mean, I came to appreciate some of it later on, you know, but it, it didn't. Wasn't something I sought out. 
to listen to. Um, I did see Joni Mitchell live. My sister took me because she was a big fan. She wanted to go. We went. I said, oh, wow, you know, and, and that kind of, I thought, well, here's a real, here's a real uh, artist, a real musician, somebody who has a, a career. But I, I, she's, she's kind of very different to me than a lot of the others that were yeah. of that scene. And Carol King, um, I didn't, I didn't buy a copy of Tapestry like everyone else did, but I, I, I tended to like her compositions with, from the real building era, right. yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and I'd still actually prefer those. I know, well, you love me so. Yes, Walking in the Sand, classic. So really, mm -hmm. it, was, it was that kind of New York punk scene of CBGBs and then Max's Kansas City and people like that, that slightly re, re you know, um, like, you know, re, I was going to say re like lit your fire, but that's a take, that's a take that song. <laughs> I'm trying not to think of take that one. Um, and Gary Blalo. So yeah, so did, did, so were you ever, the, so what happened with, with you? Did you sort of go to university or go to work during that sort of 70s period? Well, today? kind of a little bit of both. Um, I, I, I went to college for a little bit back then and, it, and, and I found it wasn't very interesting. I was taking painting classes and, and, and then I just decided to kind of uh, move on from that because I didn't really like the school. The, the school, the process of going to school was kind of over that, you know, 12 years of school. And you go to college afterwards and what really wasn't um, my thing. And, um, you know, took some jobs here and there, worked, whatever, and then got into music, like I said, towards the end of the 70s. And um, I guess it was uh, 1979, 1980, 1979, 1978, 79, 80, I can't, they all kind of go together, but decided to buy a, an electric guitar. Yes, and this is, this is it. So this is, <laughs> this is quite a drastic kind of moment, isn't it really? Right. Mm -hmm. Did it, um, I mean, did you, I mean, because mostly, I mean, it's quite an interesting narrative because most people have a bit of, you know, music when they're young or they're sort of fantasizing about being on stage and being sort of, um, I suppose, a musician of some description, you know, and often, you know, I mean, I know it's a bit of a, a cliche, or, but, but, you know, most people are sort of, it's when they're sort of 16, 18, they're desperately trying to do the, the band thing or the, Oh yeah, yeah. But, but you obviously it was kind of a bit later. So had you sort of at that point when you bought the guitar, had you played any instruments up to then, or was this all quite new? No, I never never played anything. Right. And did you and did it sort of did you enjoy the kind of the challenge of sort of picking up the guitar and sort of thinking, right, I'll, I'll I'm definitely going to have a go at this. Yes, and I and I, I and my. My inspirations were people at that time who weren't perhaps the greatest guitar players. I mean, I guess that was the thing. I was listening to the Raincoats, Rough Trade bands, and that wasn't the focus of what they were doing. And they also had basically probably started playing music maybe a couple of years before that. So it, it was a similar Yes. Approach. Um, yeah, because we had in, also in this country, there was the raincoats and there was also the marine girls who were based uh -huh. 
they were slightly based in Brighton because I've interviewed two of the members, um, Gina and Jane. And um, yes, again, they just kind of wanted to make music and there was Tracy Thorne as well in the band. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of were happy, you know, making making that kind of lo-fi, I suppose that's what it's come to be referred to on the four track you know, cassette, mm -hmm. didn't they? And, um, mm -hmm. and obviously it's amazing because now, you know, decades later, Kurt Cobain sort of often mentions the, the Marine Girls and bands like them. And, um, you know, they, they became suddenly a lot more kind of a bigger exposure because of that sort of mm -hmm. in the early nineties. So when did you write, start writing your first song? Uh, that was probably around 1980, um, 1981, something like that. And um, shortly after that, I just decided, well, let me see if I can find some some other people to play with. I didn't know anybody at the time, so I did a little ad in the local paper. And some um, people, most of them younger than I was, people from the art school, Maryland Institute, the local art school. Um, they were playing punk rock and whatnot, and they also were not that much schooled in music, but they had their guitars and drums, and that was the kind of thing I was interested in doing. Yes, absolutely. And you were obviously it was quite a pioneering thing because at that stage, because you know, though it's kind of it kind of swings roundabouts, but there was definitely kind of gatekeepers in, in sort of music during that period. Mm -hmm. So you had to do, a, you know, a major label, you had to sort of get in the right. local press, mm -hmm. certain DJs, you know, in this country, we were fortunate in the sense that we had, you know, like three music, weekly music papers like the enemy and Melody Bacon Sounds and people like John mm -hmm. Peel. But beyond that, it would have been quite tricky. But now, you know, every youngster can just kind of record their, you know, music at home and um, just mm -hmm. release it via whatever method. But then that must have, did that feel like you were on some sort of mission during that period of sort of trying to get music together? I think so. I think, I think, but it was kind of, um, there was a little bit of a scene in Baltimore where other people were doing that too. It wasn't, uh, once I found this little group of people who were doing their own thing, I thought, well, this is, this is fun. It's, it's not this huge music scene. But these people are trying to make some sounds. They're playing at the local club and or clubs. And so it seemed like a good way to start. Yes, absolutely. And mm -hmm. your first, so your first album came out in about 87. Had you been releasing singles before then and sort of playing live? Um, no, I had been, I had not done anything uh, uh, as far as my own recording um, until that time, and but I had been in bands before that, and it, and the, the band I was in previously, previous to doing the the self recording, that was when I was living in New York City, and it was a band called The Woods, and we did do some recording in studio and released one single. Right, The Woods. I have never come across the woods as well. Did you enjoy sort of being part of a, a, a sort of musical combo? Well, yes, there, I mean, there, 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 there are fun aspects to it. Um, I think um, with bands, there's always the, the notion that you have to play out to really justify your existence. And we, 
we didn't play up that much for whatever reason, but we did play some of the more well-known clubs in, in New York um, at the time, but it never became a regular thing. We probably rehearsed more, more than we yes. played live. So did, did you play Max's Kansas City or the CBGBs? CBGBs, um, Maxwell's in Hoboken, the Pyramid Club. Um, I think we played there a couple times. It, it, it wasn't very many places, but um, we didn't have that kind of, we didn't have a manager and we didn't have that, <laughs> we didn't have that kind of connection in, in such a, a big pool of people yes. as New York City. So when you, after that experience, you went back to Baltimore and that's when you sort of put the album together, the space between the buildings. Well, that was actually recorded when well, I still lived in Brooklyn. And um, then, then I left there and came back to Baltimore. So the first, the first little cassette was actually recorded in Brooklyn. Fantastic. And were you, um, I mean, at that stage, being a solo artist, I mean, we had people like, I suppose, Billy Bragg and um, I'm thinking who else. We, there was quite a few sort of, I suppose, slightly sort of scratchy, um, post-punk kind of singer-songwriters who, who sort of came up and sort of decided to do the solo act instead of trying to be part of a band. Did you, had you by that stage sort of felt that you'd sort of got your craft quite nicely sorted and sort of became much more confident as a, song, a singer songwriter? Oh, yes, and I think I think what was the most important thing was that the the uh, the recording capabilities were available for home recording. Um, at that time, they started to put out the four track cassette uh, machines for the general public. It wasn't something you had to have a lot of money to buy and you could just go into any electronic store and find one. Uh, this is when I was still living in, in New York and I found one and bought one and that's when I started recording. And the idea was just to sort of make little demo tapes for the band of new songs. But the process of recording became much more interesting. Yes, because you recorded this with your ex-drummer, hadn't you, from, from the woods, Brian? Uh-huh. So uh, he uh, he did the uh, he did some production on that both first the first two cassettes actually the first three cassettes he did production on those and added effects and reverb and made it sound quite nice. Yes, absolutely. Now, one thing that I've noticed with with doing these interviews is that um, I mean sometimes people do that kind of musical moment in you know and in this case the 80s you know that lasts for about five years and then things happen and people have to try and get money or things you know just life takes over so to speak um but they they've often sort of then put that in the archive or the attic in in, in, the, in the box and and then you know 20 or 30 years later go back and think i must try and sort of get all that sorted and and get it sort of remixed and and sort of um i don't know put on some you know, an MP3 of some description. Have you, have you got your kind of back catalogue kind of all archived and sort of accessible? Well, I did, um, and uh, in, I put pretty much everything on my own website back in 2011, and everything I had, and I put it up as MP3s for free listening. Anybody could listen to it. 
And I found out later you could actually download from there, which I didn't know. But anyway, <laughs> so I suppose a fair amount of people downloaded from it. But um, uh, that website is not up anymore. But um, it was, I think it was the thing that kind of led to these other things. People started to hear it. Yes. And this was a good 10 years after the last album I put together. So now it's been 10 years since I did that website. So it's kind of been a very gradual um, level of interest change in, <laughs> in, in all these years, it's about 20 years. Yes. And now we that? have this Captured Tracks album. So um, that was, it, was it was a slow evolution, I guess. Yeah, well, I suppose, so was that from that first period, you did the space uh, between the buildings and do you know the way? Mm -hmm. And was that, and these were all on preference recordings, which I guess is your, your own sort of label. Mm -hmm. Did you then, did you release anything else? Because then there's a bit of a gap and then there's nothing else matters, which comes out in 95. So was there anything in between that, those two? There were, there were two other home recorded cassettes. Um, so there are four home recorded cassettes before I did anything uh, with, did the, that full album with Feel Good All Over. And then there were a couple of singles right. before that album. And these are all available on Bandcamp? Um, not, no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but oh. we're, that, that's a relatively recent uh, project too, Bandcamp. I just started putting things up there maybe a year or so ago. And um, that's just a selection. But since Capture Tracks album has come out, they've added that to my band camp and they have it on their band camp. And then I recorded some new, new music this summer, this past summer. And that's on band camp too, but most of my stuff isn't on band camp, uh, yeah. Right, I got you. It's, it's very, so what was your kind of the musical kind of journey of that? Did you, at that stage, when you'd done those first four recordings on cassette, did you, when, when that chapter sort of came to a, not planned in, but often, you know, it does have it at the moment, did, did you then move into another sort of area of life at that point? Oh, I, I, I was still, you know, going to my job and trying to work on music and release something at least once a year and um, find other outlets for it. I mean, this, these were the, the days of no social media. So um, it, it was kind of more word of mouth, um, less, uh, there was no email. So, <laughs> and, no, and, no, and no Facebook and, and no Instagram and nothing like that. So, um, I worked with various small labels to record some some things, and but it never really went beyond a certain level. It yeah. just it was kind of it's kind of like a small uh, scene that maybe recognized it. And did you and do you feel that with with sort of the, your sort of musical um, journey, has it just been something that like a almost like an obsessive hobby? Do you just always just kind of wanted to have something and planning for the next release and just working on the next set of songs? Well, they, yeah, there were, there were um, I'd say things probably stopped at certain points and then picked up at others. And um, 
but I always had in mind that I would do another, I, I'd do another album and what would I do with that album and where would it go? And um, but in fact, the last two albums I released myself and um, not, those weren't through a label. So those two were recorded on eight track. Yes. And um, those were recorded at home as well. Which is amazing. I mean, because I was looking at your your um, fine camp, camp page, and it's it's really impressive how much material you sort of you've got up there. And also, I know Spotify's got quite a few releases as well. You get sort of nearly nine thousand listens a month, which obviously is yeah, that, that's nice. Um, and I think well, I think the thing that really pushed that because I never listened to band, Spotify, I didn't know anything about it, and. Um, one of my songs was used in a television show at the end of a of a TV show series. And so people started to hear that song as a result of the, as a result of the television show and the fact that it had been on a uh, an Australian compilation uh, called Sky Girl. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you know that it was the lead off track on that. and then the somehow the the person who put that album together, he also uh, sold it to this uh, TV production company or licensed it, I should say. And from there, it's kind of been, that's part of the gradual story of how these things come about. Yes. Well, it's great because, you know, on one level, I mean, I know Spotify is a bit tricky for a lot of artists, but it's interesting in the sense it's got this thing that says fans also like, and you're you're uh -huh. there with with people like the Pastels from Scotland and the Marine Girls and the Bangles mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a whole other sort of you know groups. So obviously people are going to just kind of come and keep clicking on links just to hear what you're uh -huh. about. And obviously, you know, everybody loves to discover a new artist. I, well, I used to. It's the one thing that you're always keen on. So obviously you've you've built up quite a cult following, which must mean kind of quite a lot, rather than knowing that, you know, at least when you put a record out, there is going to be a, a sort of a, a global audience who um, want to kind of listen to it, which must give you, as an artist, something to look forward to, knowing there is our fans who are constantly sort of picking up on, on stuff that you've done and looking forward well. to the next stuff. Well, it certainly makes a difference in wanting to make music in the future. I mean, um, it's not something I had any intention of doing before, um, say, last March at this time, when the, the uh, shutdown happened everywhere. And I was suddenly uh, able to just start thinking about music in general and working on with some other people on their music adding tracks and put up put together a little setup for recording here and um nothing very elaborate but i think it's it seems like uh something i'm going to continue to do at this point although i did like i said i had no intention of doing this in march 2020 no <laughs> <laughs> whatsoever so you so you got picked up by a label captured tracks in, mm -hmm. who are in Brooklyn, New York. I mean, these are the people who have put together the compilation of your of your early work. So has that just come out? Yes, it it uh, came out March twelfth. Although um, 
course, we had been discussing it and putting it together for over a year. Or so, um, so when it finally came out, and I, I, you know, I just wondered what or how will people respond to this old music, this old stuff, you know? And so, I'm very, very uh, surprised. Yes, and you must love it because it's got such a, I would say, such a sort of fantastic package you know it's such a great photograph oh well. they did a great they did a great they did a great job there you know it just has that sort of really 80s introspective slightly melancholic romantic <laughs> melancholia that we used to love in the 80s so much and it obviously just is like oh my god there's an artist we've all missed and so that must be such a nice feeling knowing that all that kind of work that you did nearly 40 years ago is just going to be picked up and sort of discovered by a whole new group of people Yes, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still absorbing that information. It's, <laughs> it's just kind of incredible. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's good. So what does that, I mean, how did you, you know, how did lockdown, how did you sort of cope with the lockdown period? Because I know speaking to some people, they found it quite difficult because they had to have plans to either do some dates, live dates, or do some you know, mm -hmm. recording. And other people, it was just kind of lucky because they, they were thinking they were going to have the year kind of slightly off to sort of regroup. So how was your sort of period of kind of strange, strange? Well, I never, I never planned any of it. I just, you know, I think a lot of people just wondered when it was going to end and what, 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 what do they do in the meantime, you know? And um, for me, I, I, like I said, I hadn't planned on doing any music, but I just started to go through some old tapes I had in a drawer of, of of bands that I had been in or songs that I hadn't released and I thought well this will be a kind of project I can digitize some of this old stuff there's plenty of time and then I sent some of it to people I'd worked with on the on the music nobody's ever heard it but it's in um except maybe live once we played live here or there and um so uh, one of the people I had worked with in a band uh, back in the 90s, Nancy Andrews is her name, she said, um, oh, I want, you know, I don't even remember us doing this. She had no memory of it, but she was also currently in lockdown in Maine. She teaches in Maine and said, um, well, um, I'm working on some songs. Would, would you be interested in adding some tracks like a keyboard part or tambourine or something like that and I said well I don't really have any setup for that no equipment I don't even know what software to use um, to do it but I figured I'd researched it looked into what would be the easiest way and came up with a way to do it and from there uh, added some stuff on her songs and um, and it was much easier than I thought it was going to be yeah. <laughs> and um, the software, not, I don't even know if you call it software, but the online program Audacity um, kind of saved the day because I, I, that was very easy for me to understand. I'd never used a digital audio workstation before. No, not GarageBand. Audacity is your, your go-to place. Yes. <laughs> Audacity was right there. Easy to download, easy to use. I know. I have, I have great fear when I have to do those things. I need someone to mm -hmm. sort of hold my hand just in case it all goes wrong. Well, it is, it is kind of stressful. <laughs> it's far too stressful, not at my age. 
Dan, I mean, what is the your, your songwriting process? Do you do you work on the music first and the lyrics, and do you sort of spend a lot of time on the lyrics? You know, like rewriting or making notes constantly to try and bring together some sort of narrative, or or sort of yeah, I just was curious. Well, uh, it could be one thing or the other. It, it, it's not necessarily always the same music first, lyrics first, but um, it's kind of a very quick, I think writing, for, for me, writing a song is very quick. And sometimes the song is written as it's being recorded. So it's not, it's not two separate processes. And that's usually how I, I worked on songs is I started with a, a beat or something and then I had some chords and I wrote lyrics while I was working on it. But then there are one or two songs that kind of just came to me in my head and, and I just worked it out on the guitar first and then put it together. Yes. And, and, have you and has that process changed much over the decades? I mean, have you, do you sort of, does it come easier now or do you have a, a sort of a way of working that feels quite different to how it was? Well, for me, the, the process is really a, a process of recording, of putting tracks down more than creating a thought out piece. So when I did the music I've done recently, um, there aren't any lyrics. It's, it's instrumental music, basically. And um, it's, it's very kind of, well, here's this part. What can I find to go? that will go well with this other part. And then just building up little little tracks, little pieces to kind of make a, a larger piece. Yes, that's quite nice. So is this the one that has a lot of title like Untitled? Is this the- Yes, the, the <laughs> yes that's called that. What made you sort of want to do an instrumental album? Well, I think I'd always wanted to do something like that, something where you just didn't worry about writing lyrics. And um, I had done a little bit of instrumentals here and there in the past. A couple of my albums had instrumentals on them. And um, then I did some instrumental music for a friend for one of her theater pieces back in the 90s. So I had done something similar, but um, I thought I'd really like to make one whole record that's just, well, I don't even know, I don't know if you could call it ambient, but it like uh, just instrumental um, soundtracks, kind of. Yes, and, and there you go, it's got to be done. <laughs> Bit of a Brian Eno moment there. So what does that, yeah. <laughs> with, um, with, I know you've mentioned, you know, sort of looking at some of the archives, is there anything else that you're working on that, that looks like it will get released in the next couple of years? Um, well, um, I think Captured we I've talked with Captured Tracks about doing another compilation of songs from, uh, from amongst my other songs, and um, that's probably in the next couple of years. I'm not sure exactly what the date would be, but um, it would have to probably be, I would say maybe two years from now. Right. I don't know. Yeah. But there will there there's definitely probably going to be another one at some point, and um, and we've also talked about uh, releasing 
an album of the band I was in in New York, The Woods, because we did do a fair amount of recording in a studio that was, stuff was never released except for the songs from the single. Yes. Um, that's, um, that's in a discussion phase as well. <laughs> but um, I know they're putting together another uh, volume of Strum and Strum and the two records out of the Jangle Pop bands. And the Woods uh, are supposed to have a track on that volume too as well. So, um, and as far as any new music, not sure about that yet, but probably there will be something. That's amazing. I mean, it's just such a great story actually, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you could have said something to a 16, 18 year old starting out, I just wondered what you would have wanted to say to them, you know, like some advice, you know, from the wisdom and the experiences that you've had, because you obviously, you've recorded a lot of material and you've, you know, you've played live and you've met a lot of different people and you've, you've made music part of, you know, what you do throughout your life now. So I just wondered if there was any kind of key thing that you would have said to that person. Well, um, of course, these days it's people are approaching things from different um, avenues and there's there are different ways of putting music out now that say we didn't have yes. in the 80s or 90s but um and if you go on Bandcamp you'll see that I mean there's a, there's a lot of really good music on Bandcamp that I mean it's it's amazing it's and it's all a lot of it's recorded on people's own equipment and um they're recording this music at home um, and especially right now, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to listen to it because there aren't shows to go see. And there was always this divide about live as opposed to recorded music. Um, yes. I'm not so much a live person myself, but um, I do enjoy seeing shows. But anyway, anyone today, I would just say, keep doing uh, what you think you want to do. Don't don't try to be, be or do something that fits in with what everybody else is doing. Yeah. Um, I think that's, you, that's the only thing you can do. And um, now maybe you'd want to, if you're someone who wants to make music like the big hit makers, that's fine too. Um, but if you don't, there are lots of other ways to have people hear it now. Yeah, so. absolutely. So is it true, because what I read recently was that Emily's House, which you did in 2001, you have, because it says here that it's, um, that was the last album you've done, but you've done records since then, haven't you? Um, just, I was, in, I was in a recording and a sort of semi-live band called The Window Shoppers in, 2007 I can't remember the year but I think and and but I just played guitar in that basically I wasn't it was a group of uh, friends we got together and recorded um at a friend's home studio um but uh I haven't done an album a whole album of original new music since 2001 right 20 years <laughs> So is it the case that you also are a visual artist as well? Mm -hmm. So is that your day job or just another sideline? 
Um, well, it was, a, it was another, it was kind of like music. It was something I wanted to do. Um, I mean, I haven't been in very many shows or anything, and that's not even my prime goal at this point, because I didn't get back into painting until, until after 2001. <laughs> and, um, and that's really why I was more interested or less interested in saying making music, because the painting was of more interest to me yes. as an activity. Yeah, nice one. And who, what's the most surprising person who's been in touch with you? You know, like, have there been any other musicians or bands that have sort of, sort of dropped you an email or, or sort of a note and you've been? Well, um, I, I would say that um, some of them are people I don't know. Um, yeah, a lot of young people um, who, who have kind of shown an interest before this album came out and had contacted me. Um, one of them is um, actually an English artist. Uh, I don't know if you know her, Keel Her. She goes by the name Keel Her. And uh, oh, yes. she really, she does her own releases as well. And, um, and then here, uh, an artist who goes by the name Locate S1 and who's released a couple albums, um, one through Capture Tracks. So these are people who contacted me before all this capture track stuff because they heard my, my music online, I yes. guess. Maybe the website, the old website. So um, these are all people who, are too young to really know it from the time yes. <laughs> that it was put out. And that's probably one of the more um, interesting things that's happened is the, the, the young people interest in this music. I, uh, it's mostly young people. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I did see the, the Billie Eilish film recently and uh, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of her material is all recorded from home and in the, mm -hmm. in the living room and bedroom. And, you know, so it's kind of on one level, you could think she must go into the studio and do all that. But then I realize that she probably doesn't she probably was like well, that's that's it you know we can do it all from the comfort of um our bed really so um it's interesting that you you know you've sort of started that kind of movement back in the the 80s you know with as you said the marine girls and the raincoats and people like that who were also recording on four tracks and and sort of putting out these cassettes that have become cult classics really haven't they Yes, it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of, um, and there, and I see that that in general there are labels now earth, unearthing a lot of music from these other uh, eras, and um, some people that that I didn't know uh, myself from the same time. So, I mean, it's it's um, it's interesting to see that record labels have kind of taken over this. Uh, archiving. Yes, I know. I, 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 become I, little libraries, kind of. Well, there's a few little labels that have just started or have just been going, and they, they, you know, they release, you know, these kind of very obscure records, and mostly from mm -hmm. people who never even put together an album, but put together a load of twelve inches and singles, mm -hmm. but enough material to make, you know, a, a release of a, to make up an a album. vinyl record and. You know the artists like wow someone wants to be bothered to do it and 
I think they would, but they feel like actually they kind of remember the the emotional, I don't know, emotional stuff that went into mm -hmm. it. And they're Maybe. kind of like, oh, actually, if someone else can do it, I'm not interested in the money, but that would be great if, if that mm -hmm. very nerdy person who runs this very small little record label would do it, we'd be happy because they've never had a you know collection of all the work that's been put together. So it mm -hmm. is good that uh, there are those enthusiasts around the place who are doing all that. So well, amazing. also the, the very fact that vinyl has come back and cassettes, um, and that's young people also interested in music on those old formats. So um, I never thought I'd see vinyl being no. produced again. Not we the thought, way it is now. No, we thought vinyl was done. We I thought, hope it's gone. It was gone. We, we threw all our, yes, and that was not true. But look, well, Linda, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you, David. Thank and, you. Um, yes, it's been brilliant. So if you want, when I do this, I can always send you a link and then you can put it up for um, oh, yes. uh -huh. anyone to listen to it because um, uh -huh. you wouldn't believe it, but people just love, the more, I found the more obscure, the, the more kind of people listen. <laughs> I think well, great, I know you. Yes, so it's great, it's great stuff, but I'll try and do that in the next week and then I can send you a link and, um, you know, bingo, okay. you, can, you can sort of put it up and um, do anything you want. And um, yes. Okay, great. I definitely uh, share it with the record label, Capture Tracks. They're, they're interested in all of these things. And, um, and they have quite a, um, uh, I would say, a, a sort of a setup for actually doing marketing and PR and all of this. And so it's the first record label I've ever worked with that had that kind of reach, that kind of um, ability. Yeah, they know what they're doing. And that's good. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Hurrah for them. That's good. Well, look, thank you so much. And uh, yes, I must remember my time in British summertime. Okay, British summertime. okay. yes, anyway, I'm, I'm glad I, would, I came across the email or else I, I wouldn't have checked until four o'clock and then I don't know what would have happened. Oh, it's, so it's now four o'clock with you now or 10 past? It's just 10, 10 after four now. And after four, I'll make it in Baltimore. And you have different uh, uh, sort of daylight savings time times in, in the UK. Yeah, so our clocks went forward an hour on Sunday. So. Um, oh, okay, okay. So that's because we're normally uh, Greenwich Mean Time and then it goes to British Summer Time when the clocks change. And then mm -hmm. next week is going to be Easter. So um, that's mm -hmm. that. So it's good. Anyway, look, brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much. All right. Have a well, lovely thank day. Thank you, David. Take All right, care. you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. I know. Bye-bye. There you go. That is showbiz. I could edit that out, but actually I quite like it because it's um, made me smile. That's what old people get obsessed with, timekeeping and different time zones. It's tricky. Anyway, look, that's me in conversation with Lynn Smith. A big thank you to Linda for that. And uh, as I said, you can find her work on Bandcamp. Just do Linda Smith Bandcamp or musician. And also she's got, um, yes, on Spotify as well, so you can listen to the work. Check it out. It's fantastic. Um, if you want to contact me for some exciting reason, make it nice and positive, otherwise don't bother, you can, uh, yes, get in touch via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do, just do C86 Show. And also all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and again, just do C86 Show. This has been David Eastall. Have a great week. Stay safe.